Our text this morning is chapter 12 of Zechariah. Zechariah is near the back of your Old Testament. Chapter 12 is near the very end of the book, just a few chapters left in this Old Testament prophetic book for us. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Zechariah chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem again shall be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David And the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem." And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon In the plain of Megiddo, the land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by himself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves." And all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. 
Oh Lord, our God. Lord, we ask that you would use your word, that you would use it powerfully in our lives. We ask, O Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us in your word, who you are, the mighty deeds that you have done, the plans that you have for us. Lord, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in your word. Help us to see the cross, that we might be encouraged that we might be pointed toward the Savior, that we might pick up our steps on our way to the celestial city, that we would long to be with you, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We've come now to chapter 12 of Zechariah. We've been in Zechariah for some time. And chapter 12 begins the second of two oracles that God is bringing specifically with respect to the kingdom that is coming and the coming king. You may recall that in chapter 9 we saw an oracle or as is sometimes translated a burden of the Lord. It is a word of the Lord to his people. It is something that points out urgency. It gathers our attention immediately. This second oracle, we're not exactly sure how it relates specifically to the first, but we do know that it is an oracle that is focused on Israel. We see that in verse 1. It is the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. God is going to speak to His people, and He is going to describe for them the blessings that He brings to them. And we see this in two main headings this morning. The first we see as he describes himself as the strength of his people, that God is the strength of his people. And then secondly, we see that he describes himself as the provision of his people, that God not only strengthens his people, he provides for them. And we see this especially in the well-known prophetic verse in the end of chapter 12. The strength of his people and the provision of his people. When we begin to think of our own difficulties and challenges, we long to be strengthened. We long to know that we stand on firm ground. It's no surprise that for many of us we think and believe that we are living in troubling times. Times of of great danger, times of hostility to the faith and to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the good news is, is that that doesn't make us different from our brothers and sisters throughout the centuries. The world has always been a place of danger and conflict as the nations have sought to surround and destroy God's people. It's actually exactly what Zechariah is talking about here in Judah and Jerusalem. And when we see that there are difficulties... We need the Lord. And the first question that should come to our mind is, who is this God? Because you see, if we are to be strengthened by God, it helps us to know the character and the nature of God. What He is like, what He can do. And Zechariah begins this chapter doing exactly this. He says, Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens... And founded the earth, 
and form the spirit of man within him. You see, before he even gets down to telling us what God is saying, he describes God in a full, full way. He is first and foremost the creator. Now this is important because there are incredible promises that are about to come from God in these times of danger. And so the prophet now begins with a reminder of who it is that makes these statements. He tells us that God is the one who has founded the earth. He is the creator of all things. Now, God being the creator is helpful to us as we think of our own lives and challenges. Now, stop for just a moment and think about how massive the universe is. Think about the fact that we sit in a room that is located in a town, that is located in a state, that is located in a nation, that is on a continent, that is on a planet, that is in a solar system, that is a part of a galaxy, that is a part of a wide and vast universe. As our minds go out to all of creation, we see the great power and authority of God. As we contemplate creation, it helps us to understand how sufficient God is for us. Because He is the creator of all things. And it's not just that the universe is massive. Think about how complex the universe is. You see, when we face our challenges, the two things that come to our forefront of our minds are, number one, are we able to face them? And number two, are they just so difficult and challenging, can we even get our arms around them? And God speaks to us as the one who has created all of the universe, and in that universe is intricacy beyond anything we could imagine. The way that the planets move, the way that the cells within our bodies do the dance of life, as it were, moving back and forth, providing all that we need to keep us sustained and alive. God is the creator. But He's not just a creator. He is the one who has founded the earth, but He's also the one who stretches out the heavens. He is also the sustainer. You see, some have come to the faulty view that the universe just sort of goes on its own. Some have claimed to believe in a God. The formal name for them are deists. If you've ever heard of a deist, a deist is someone who believes in a God, but quite frankly, he's not much of a God. He's someone who can create the universe, but is bored with it. Doesn't want anything to do with it. He winds it up like a watch and then lets it go. This is, of course, very similar to what the naturalists in our own day believe. They have a view of an impersonal universe, that the universe cares nothing for anyone, that we are alone in the dark. But the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of glory is not only the creator of all things, He is the sustainer of all things. Zechariah gives us an image of this because each of the three verbs in verse 1, stretched, founded, and formed, are actually Hebrew participles. And what that means is there is a sense of continuation in them. You know what a participle is, right? It's a verb with ing on the end of it. It continues on. 
And so what Zechariah is telling us is that God has done this creation, but he is sustaining it right now by his power. This is, of course, what the Apostle Paul says when he describes the Lord Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1. He says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The God who is before us is the one who has created all things and who keeps all things moving, sustained. He is the one who gives life to us. He is described as the one who formed the spirit of man within him. Now this should be of great encouragement to each of us. Because you see, no matter what anyone else may tell you, God is telling you that you are not random. You are purposed in who you are. You have value because God has placed the spirit within you. God knows you and your personality and he has created it purposefully. We are not a random bunch of cells brought together. We are not a random set of synapses. We are not floating around the world without purpose. God himself has given us life. And God himself is the one who speaks. It's not just that God is active. It's not just that God is sovereign. It's not just that he is the creator and sustainer. He wants us to know this. And so he speaks to us. And he speaks with a sense of urgency that we must stop and listen to. This is the God who strengthens us. And so once we know who God is, we can then ask the question, how will he protect us? You see, we come under attack. It's been more and more in recent years and decades even in our own nation, how the church of Jesus Christ has come under attack, both from within and without. And when we feel under attack, we need God to protect us. And we ask Him, what will you do, O Lord? And He answers, first and foremost, in verse 2, that He will confound our enemies. He will confuse them and diffuse them. Now, I want you to notice that He says in verse 2, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. I think if we were writing verse 2, we would write it somewhat differently. We wouldn't want a siege. We wouldn't want enemies around us. We would want verse 2 to speak about something like a peaceful meadow with a soft breeze where there's no hostility and no one coming against us. But you see, God doesn't say that. He doesn't tell us how easy it will be. He doesn't declare for us that we are safe and we have ease. He actually tells us the exact opposite. He says, the nations will try to consume you. They will siege you. They will come after you. But the great comfort is that he will deal with our enemies. He causes them to be blinded by their own evil and wickedness. The picture here is of nations rushing to a table headlong, elbowing each other out of the way, trying to drink and consume the people of God. But in doing so, all they do is drink the wrath of God. They become inebriated. They stumble around. They are confused and confounded. They are unable 
to persecute the people of God. They will not triumph. They are actually defeated by their own wickedness. The second thing we see is that God makes His people a rock. We see this in verse 3. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Now, the picture here in the agricultural nation of Israel is of a man plowing a field, making furrows. And I don't know if you've ever had opportunity to do this or to see this done, if you've had a garden in your backyard, but there are times when you are, when you are plowing the furrows where there will be rocks or stones in the way. And what you don't do is try and go out of the way and go make circles and curves and mess everything up just to go around the rock. What you do is you go down and you get the rock and you dig it up and you move it out of the way. And you see, this is the description of how the nations view the people of God. The church is in their way. It's in the way of their view of the family. It's in the way of their view of sexuality. It's in the way of their view of greed and pride. And what they want to do is to move the church out of the way. Now, you don't need a Hebrew text to convince you of that, do you? Because all you need to do is be reading articles in the newspaper or on the internet, watching the news. You see that over and over again now, the nations around us are seeking to move the church out of the way, to make its beliefs irrelevant to make its statements unheard so that they can push headlong upon what they believe and want and desire. And if you are like me, that frustrates you. It frustrates you that the nation is going headlong, pushing the church and God's word out of the way. Well, an encouragement then comes from verse 3. Because you see, what God is saying is, try as they might, they can never move my people out of the way. As a matter of fact, when they try to do this, they will be the ones who are hurt. There's this, again, this image of the one plowing and trying to make a furrow, and he's so sure he could just toss this stone to the side, and as he bends over, he throws his back out. And his hands are cut. And scrap and... Pull and tug as much as he can. He can't move this stone. Because God has set it there. And God makes us a rock. The Lord also intently battles for us. And we see this intensity in verse 4. We see that then on that day the Lord declares, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Now, this again should encourage us that God strengthens us because the more we are attacked, the more He defends us. Do you see this movement from verse 2 to verse 4? First, God strikes our enemies with confusion. Then, with a wounding And now here in verse 4, there is madness. You see, no matter how the world attacks, the Lord our God will not abandon us. Where is He taking us, though? The Lord protects us. But are we simply in some sort of static defense mode? Too often, I believe, we are tempted to view the church as being completely on the defense. 
we're tempted to see the church as being surrounded by the enemies of God. It's almost like an island surrounded by water. That we have, we have no hope except for maybe to scrape and to hold on. We're hoping against hope to hold out. And when we think this way, it shows our perspective toward the world and toward God. But what God does here is He speaks a resounding no to this. His people are not called to merely be on the defensive. We're not called to merely hold on. No, the church is God's instrument for the building of His kingdom. The church, we are His ambassadors to declare His glory and His grace. And His kingdom is moving forward each and every day. And it will spread. Now, Zechariah gives us a picture of what this looks like. He says in verse 5, or excuse me, in verse 6, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, and like a flaming torch among the sheaves. Now get that image in your mind. What happens if you put wood around a flaming pot? Well, the wood will catch fire, won't it? In case you missed that, look at the second image. What would happen if you raked up leaves in your yard and put them in a circle and then put a flaming torch in the middle of it? Of course, the leaves would burst out into flame. This is the image that God wants us to have of His work in us and through us. That the church of Jesus Christ goes forward that it carries the message of God's Word, and that it will spread. And this is our call and our duty that the Lord gives to us, that we are called to burn brightly in the world. And that in doing so, the kingdom of the Lord will spread. And it will spread and take us to a place of importance. Look at verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. You see, what Zechariah wants us to see is that there are no divisions, no party spirit, no ranks within the people of God. And to prove his point, he says, salvation will come first to the outskirts. It'll come first to those who aren't living in the city, who don't have important addresses. And it's interesting, the other fact is, is that salvation then comes in such a way that there is no way that we can take responsibility for it. Now, if I told you an army was going to attack, and you could pick one of two places to be, would you pick inside the city, behind the walls, or would you pick outside in a tent? That's not a difficult choice. But you see, what God says is, I begin in the tents. I will show my salvation there first so that they cannot say it was their walls. They cannot say it was their city or their might. The importance that God places upon us comes from Himself. And He brings us, lastly, to a place of strength. We see this in verse 8. 
He will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, God knows that you feel weak at times. Part of that is our impatience. We want things to happen quickly. We want to be able to do what we want when we want to. And our inability to get things done as fast as we want makes us feel unable. But part of it is also knowing ourselves. Knowing that we don't have it all together. Knowing that for as good of a face as we put on for others, we still have trouble in our own hearts and lives. God knows this. And because of this, He tells us that He will empower us. That He will make us strong. That the weakest will be like David. There will be no one left behind. What He is saying to us is, is that we are able because of His strength. There are no extras in the kingdom of God. You know what an extra is like, don't you? When you have these large-scale movies, especially from the 50s and the 60s, where you have hundreds and thousands of people in these big, epic shots. And they don't have lines. They don't speak. They just put a costume on and stand around. They're extras. And if an extra gets sick, they just find another extra. They're just along for the ride. There are no extras in the kingdom of God. There are no people who are just hanging around. There are no people who are unimportant to the Lord our God. The feeblest among His people are strengthened like David. This is the Lord our God who strengthens us. The second thing we see from this text this morning is the provision of God for His people. The provision. So if we ask ourselves, if we are strengthened, what does it look like then to see and receive this grace of God? You see, so often our view of strength is that we need to pull ourselves together, pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. We need to be responsible. We need to have things together. We need to get the job done. And the problem is, just like we view strength this way, we can view grace this way. How do we very practically view the grace of God? If we're honest with ourselves, often we act as if it begins with us. What do I mean by this? Well, part of this is from our experience. You see, we believe that we need God and we cry out to Him. And He responds to us with blessing and grace. And you see this, perhaps you've experienced this when you heard certain people give a testimony of their faith in Christ. It's a testimony in which the most frequent word that is used is the word I. Well, I came to know that I had a need. And I had to find the Lord. And I read in His Word. And I believed. And I did. And I went. And it happened for me. The focus is on us. But you see, God wants to correct this way of thinking. 
You see, it's not that we cry out and God responds. It's that God gives us the grace to cry out. Do you see that in verse 10? I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. God is actually empowering us by His grace to cry out to Him. You see, God is the one in control. He says, I will pour out. He doesn't ask our permission. He doesn't ask if we think it's a good idea. He is the one in sovereign control. There are no methods that we can use in order to bring this about. The church has lost sight of this at various times through the centuries. There was a movement in America in the mid-19th century under a man by the name of Charles Finney. And Finney believed that everyone had the ability to choose God and not to sin. And so because of this, his way of seeing salvation brought to people was to manipulate them, was to make the seating arrangement a certain way, was to have certain music, was to have certain elements in what he did and the way he spoke to people, trying to manipulate them into initiating with God. The problem is none of these methods work because we can't initiate. We're the ones who are weak. We're the ones who are lost. We're the ones who are in need of salvation. But praise be to God that God takes the initiative with us and that our hope and our method is actually God. We must focus on Him. We must look to Him for our salvation. Now, God works so that we will see. But then the question is, what are we to see? What are we looking for? He puts a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy in us. And then what are we to do? We are to look, he says. We are to look on me, on him whom they have pierced. See, what Zechariah is describing here is the grace of God pointing us to the work of God. The first question we must ask ourselves here is, who is speaking? Who is the one who is pierced? Now, I have to tell you that this seems a bit confusing and it gives some commentators, especially Jewish commentators, a great deal of difficulty. Because you see, what the text says is, when they look on me, and it's very clear that up till this point, God has been talking. So the me is God. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. You see, this troubles people. How could God be pierced? How could God suffer? And so what they do is what people often do with the scriptures. We've seen this before. They change it. They change the pronoun me to the one who. They make it another person. But you see... This text is a key text for describing to us the work of God in salvation because it is, after all, the Lord Himself who is pierced. This text itself shows us in a light the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because it is God who is pierced in the person of Jesus Christ. We look up to the Lord 
Even as Jesus says in John 3, the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And of course, the Apostle John looks at this specific verse and after our Lord Jesus Christ was pierced with a spear on the cross, He said, this was done that this Scripture would be fulfilled. They will look on Him whom they have pierced. You see, we are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that draws us to Himself. He is the pierced one. But if I may, the focus here of Zechariah is not even primarily on the piercing of Jesus. The focus is on the reaction of those who see Him pierced. And how they mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over Him. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. You see, Zechariah wants us to understand that when we look upon the one who is pierced, we are struck to the core. And he takes the two most significant things in his mind that would cause mourning and sorrow. And he lays them before us. The first is the death of a child. Parents mourn and weep like never before at the death of a child. There is a huge sense of loss and suffering and meaninglessness. And the second example he gives is the death of the last good king of Judah, Josiah, at the battle of Megiddo with the Pharaoh of Egypt. At that time Israel believed or Judah believed that they all was lost. They mourned and sorrowed. And you see, this is what we, who look upon the Lord who is pierced, should feel. Why do we mourn when looking upon the one who is pierced? Because we are responsible. We are the ones who put our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It is our sins, it is our pride, it is our carelessness, it is our wickedness that put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And only until we look at the Lord Jesus and understand that, in the midst of that great transaction, that our sins were placed upon Him, only until we do that will we find provision from God. It's not just the fact that this happened. It's that it's our own doing. And this is something that has been seen throughout the church in history. It's what happened at Pentecost. When Peter described the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was killed by their hands, their lawless, wicked hands. They were struck to the core, Luke tells us. And they asked, what can we do? And Peter told them, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's what's happening now in the church as the gospel goes forward, as we put the clarion call of the gospel in front of others. Do you know this morning that you are a sinner? You are. I am. We have sinned before a holy God. We have done wickedness and wrong. And for that wickedness and wrong, we deserve eternal punishment. Death eternal. But the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself, became man. 
lived a perfect life, obeying the law in every respect, and went to the cross and died an atoning death that we might find forgiveness of sins. You see, it is what Jesus has done that makes all the difference for us, that brings us to a place where we see the provision of God for us and we are struck with sorrow, a godly sorrow that brings about repentance. Because you see, we do not just look at the one upon the cross. We are changed by the one upon the cross. We sorrow over our own responsibility and there is a very particular nature of this sorrow. You've heard it said that we must repent of particular sins, particularly. That God will not be satisfied with a general and vague repentance. And that is what Zechariah is saying here this morning. Do you notice how over and over again he's talking about every one of these families and how they are mourning by themselves? He goes through the political kingly families of David and of Nathan. He goes through the priestly families of Levi and of the Shemites. He even says their wives mourn particularly. You see, Zechariah is trying to point us to the fact that we must come personally to the Lord Jesus Christ. That our hearts personally must be broken. That we must repent of our sins. Our lives must be shaped by the cross. For it is in looking to the cross that we see the worth of Jesus Christ. It is in looking to the cross that we see the suffering that He endured. It is in looking to the cross that we see the horror of our sin. Not just the consequences that might come to us. In the cross, we have hope for redemption. In the cross, we see the heart of God providing for His people at great cost that we might repent and that by faith we might gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ and that in that we might be made anew, saved from sin and death because of what our Lord has done. This was predicted Centuries before our Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth. And it is as true today as it was then. God is the strength of His people. And God alone provides for His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that You have given to us. This image we have of our Lord Jesus Christ pierced before us. Lord, we ask that you would use that to work godly sorrow in our hearts. That we would repent of our sins. That we would long to seek after you. And that we would find forgiveness and grace by faith in Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.